I'm Chris Costello, and welcome to On Cue. I look forward to sharing with you topics and guests which may be out of the ordinary and some very extraordinary people who are making a noticeable imprint in today's world. Centuries ago, wine was used to treat various health conditions. And in Roman times, only the rich were privy to this social drink, of which texture and taste was completely different from the wine of today. Through the centuries leading into modern times, wine has evolved as part of our life and culture. People gather socially to drink wine. Chefs have found wine to be a necessary ingredient with foods. And in America alone, wine has been embraced with more people consuming because of dining out more and enjoying the matching of wine to cuisine. But with so many wines, both red and white, and with various distinguishable flavors and tastes, here to take us into the world of wine is Michael Cristillo, a wine buyer with Bristol Farms, a Southern California-based company. Michael has traveled the world visiting wineries. He's toured the vineyards, sampled the wines, spoken to the owners and winemakers. Wine has been his passion, hobby, career, and it's a pleasure to have him here with me on On Cue. Michael, welcome. Thank you for having me. Michael, you know more than anybody that wine has been around since ancient times. And I know the method of wine has changed dramatically, but is it constantly evolving with new methods of producing? It's been constantly evolving since probably 6,000 BC. Wine has been around that long. They believe that it started someplace in Georgia, you know, in that section of Russia, in the Caucasus. And really from day one, I mean, it went from being a very sweet wine that the Romans enjoyed to what we now enjoy today are dry wines. I've been in this business for 25 years, and I learn something new every day. And it's always, always changing. It's just a landmine of things that get changed in the winery, in the cellar, rootstocks, soils, all that plays a part in it. And just when you think, you know, I've heard it all or I know everything about it, somebody does something completely different. And Instead of going left, I'm going right, and you've got to learn what that new technique is. What I love about wine is that it's not stayed. It's, it continues to develop and evolve, and then plus we have the vintages. So maybe 1961 was a great year, but maybe, you know, 10 years later, 71, it's completely, you know, rubbish. And so every vintage is completely different, and it does keep you on your toes. Well, you know, it seems to be a science. You know, wine is a science in planting the right grapes that will produce the best harvest. And I've always wondered, you know, where do these wineries get their grapes, especially if the grape determines the taste and there are so many flavors that evolve with each type of wine. I mean, I know that you have to have fertile ground, you have to have the right soil, but you also have to have the right grapes. Do they go to a grape festival? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Where do they get the grapes? I, I tell you, there, there's a myriad of choices on this one. I mean, some people are, you know, they have indigenous grapes, as they used to have, you know, in Greece, who took their grapevines all over that Mediterranean part of the world two, 3,000 years ago. And then they wouldn't plant these new grapes. I mean, Sicily, Lebanon, it's just a myriad of where these grapes came from. In today's world, there are nurseries, and you can buy cuttings. And depending on what you want to plant and making sure the soil is proper for it, you can buy it from nurseries around the world. We have actually many in the state of California. And, you know, well, if you want to do Rhone varietals, you can get those. If you want to do Bordeaux varietals, it's pretty much everything is available as a need-to-have basis. Well, you know, I had a friend years ago up in uh, Calabasas, far into the valley, 
And he loved wine, and he went so far as to travel over to Italy to get soil that he could use, or at least find out what were the components of that soil to produce this white wine that he loved. He worked for a year or two on developing the right soil, and he grew this amazing harvest, and he put out his own wine briefly, but he put out his own wine. Would you say that also climate has a lot to do with it? Uh, I mean, you've traveled all over the world visiting all these wineries. So you've got the Mediterranean climate. You've got maybe a drier climate. Does that have a lot to do with it, with the soil, with the grapes? Soil, probably, I would state as number one. Climate, a very, very close to. You know, as the French say, it's all about the terroir or, you know, the earth, the soil. And it's funny when you said earlier, you know, we look for fertile soil to plant grapes in. It's actually just the opposite. We don't want fertile soil. We want really? soil that yes, rich in nutrients, but the best grapes demand that they work for their money because if you plant something in really great soil, you're going to have decent grapes. But if you plant grapes in soil that is difficult to allow the roots to work through and they have to work for it, that creates more concentrated grapes. And then thus you have a better glass of wine, a better bottle of wine. So it's, it's always been kind of funny that when somebody says, oh, the soil isn't very good here, I think I'm going to plant some grapes. It's really, really true. You know, it's, we're not growing raisins. We're growing something that's got to struggle and has to be very difficult for its root to break through at a deeper level. And you don't want great soil for doing that, which is kind of interesting. Is it tougher to grow, let's say, for a red wine versus a white wine? Yeah. I mean, typically, if you think, think of some of the greatest white wines on the planet, like, you know, if you go to Burgundy and you go to Chablis, these are soils that are more limestone and chalky, and you can actually taste that in the wine. If you're looking at something that we have, you know, let's say up in Napa or Sonoma, then you're talking about some that are going to be, you know, clay-based, sand, schist, slate. Every area has its own little signature, and it's what we call microclimates. I did a trip to Argentina, and they had burrowed about 10 feet deep to plant more vines, and they realized 10 feet over, it was basically clay, and back on the other side, it was like slate and schist. I mean, they literally are only 10 feet apart. I mean, the colors were different. The density was different. And so when you see that, you've got to make sure you have the right great rootstock to plant in it. Otherwise, it simply will not take. So it's, it's really a combination of both. And when you think about white wines and let's say cold climate white wines, there are some great wines that are being grown up in the New York State in the Finger Lakes. And these will not do well with warm weather. They like the cold. So there's just so many moving parts to the production of wine, it really does take a lot of experience to learn these things. And that's why some of the greatest winemakers didn't go to school to learn this trade. They worked as cellar wraps and worked their way up, and they really have a feeling for what they need to do to make their wine great. With the holidays coming up, I know people always get sort of, you know, confused. You know, should I get the red wine? Should I get the white wine? And I know it's all a preference of taste, but is it still the norm where the red works better with the beef? and the white works well with the fish. And why is that? And can the rules be broken? Can we serve a red with fish? Can we serve the white with beef? Yes, absolutely. You can. I'm glad you kind of bring that up because often when I'm in the wine department and somebody says, well, I'm doing this tonight, what do you recommend? Should I do red? Should I do white? And yes, it's important to know what the protein is, but in a sense, it's even more important to know what the seasoning is and what the sauce is. That finishes off the plate, the recipe. 
But let's say you were having a turkey, and let's say you were having the stuffing and all the holiday fare, but let's say there's a lot of spicy dishes on the table, too. You know, you got spicy versus, you know, non-spicy. I mean, I know the white is going to give a different taste when you're tasting the food, but are we breaking the rules? Is anything, you know, acceptable now in the world of wine? You know, I think everything is acceptable, and it really depends on your taste. I mean, for instance, if somebody says, well, I'm going to be serving, you know, this particular type of a uh, stuffing, and we're going to, you know, we love the white meat. Well, I mean, my first thing to say would not be Chardonnay, which you can drink every day of the year. I would recommend like a Gewurz demeanor or a Riesling or maybe like an Albarino from Spain that tastes a little like a Chardonnay, but it's a bit more on the steely side, the mineral side. You want wine to go with food to enhance the pleasure. And your palate will let you know almost immediately if it's the right choice or if it's not the right choice. It doesn't have to break the bank, though. I mean, you don't have to go and buy a really expensive wine. I remember Trader Joe's used to put out that two-buck chuck, and everybody was flocking in there to get the two-buck chuck, and it tasted really good, and it was very cheap in price. But today, I think what scares people off is that if I go to get a good wine, I'm going to have to pay a lot of money. But that's not true anymore, is it? No, it, it hasn't been true probably since, let's say, the mid-90s, especially like when South America came on board with Argentina and their Malbecs or Spain. You don't have to spend a lot of money. We actually have a program called at Bristol Farms called uh, 10 Under 10. My wine boss director, Jeff Nickel, and I taste every wine that comes in, and we'll have two, 3,000 different wines at one time. And we taste everything. And these are wines that you can spend five, six, seven dollars on. Some have really good ratings, but we taste everything to make sure that we really, really like it no matter what it costs. Michael, I got to ask you a question. You taste all of these wines on your workday? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, how do you feel at the end of the day? <laughs> I professionally spit into a bucket. I do not imbibe. That comes when I get home after a long day. <laughs> um, but it's just, it's, you know, the thing is with Thanksgiving that's coming up, you think about people say, well, I want a, you know, a cab, I want a Chardonnay. It's like, mm, you know what? It's going to be a special meal once you come up with a special wine. I'll be more than happy to sell you a $500 bottle of, you know, Polini Monchet from, from Burgundy or a Bordeaux for, you know, $1,000. But I mean, really, you can spend 10, 15 bucks and really, really get a good bottle of wine, whether it's white or red. And it's just a, a simple rule of thumb, white turkey meat, stick with the whites. But again, I would recommend a Riesling, a Gewurz, maybe a really good Spanish white, a Verdejo or an Albarino, something like that. On the reds, you definitely want to go with a Pinot. Pinot will go with everything on that plate. It'll go with the white meat, the dark meat, the stuffing, the vegetables. Pinot really is probably the best overall varietal to use for Thanksgiving with Beaujolais being the second close choice. And obviously, we all know on the third Thursday of November, we release our Nouveau Beaujolais from France. It's a light, fruity wine, um, dry, but very fruity. And again, it will go with pretty much everything you have on your plate. This is interesting because, you know, I've tried the white wine and it's okay, but it always leaves an aftertaste, you know, for me, whereas the red wine doesn't. It's robust. And for me, it's a great companion wine for food. But you've traveled the world. I mean, you've gone from South America, New Zealand, South Africa, yeah. France. You lived in France for four years. You've traveled the world. What would you say, just simply in your opinion, what are some of the regions that are really excelling in producing the good wine of today and why? 
Probably my first choice would be Spain. It's an unbelievable country, and I've been there several times, and the areas of production is just phenomenal. And again, these are wines that can get low to mid-90 points from the great national critics, and they may cost $15. If I want to get the same thing, let's say, from Burgundy or Bordeaux or Napa Valley, and I want to get that same kind of press, well, I might be spending $75, $100. Spain is unbelievable. I mean, in its whites, it's, it's reds that are made primarily from Garnacho or Tempranillo, all the way to their sherries. It's just an unbelievable country in so many ways. And if anyone ever has a chance to go there and visit the wine country, be it in the south, the mid-central area, the Jumilla area, or north, it's really worth making that trek. And I would say the other country probably that's really taken us by storm is Argentina because of the Malbecs. Um, really? Oh, it's been huge because, again, Malbec is this... Fabulous wine, not very tannic, but really good body. You can get a great one for six bucks, or you can get a dynamite one for twenty. It's rarely over that price point, and it's a wine because it's softer on the tannins, and we can bring that up in a later conversation. It goes with just about everything, and I cannot believe you brought up two buck chuck earlier in the conversation because <laughs> when I tried that wine and I didn't know what I was tasting, I looked at the first and I was being as nice as I could possibly be, and I am a bit snooty. I admit that. I said, you know, this stuff tastes like two bucks. And he goes, you know what? That's what it costs. Ah, two buck chuck. That <laughs> so, is so funny. So yeah. one of the things that you had mentioned earlier is how when you, you sample all the wines and you taste it and you do a spit, okay? Um, so obviously people cannot go into their store and say, well, I'd like to try this wine and spit it into a, a bucket. Um, so what is the purpose of that? Because you see a lot of the wine connoisseurs doing that. What are they doing? They, they, they swirl it around in the glass. They take a sip, swirl it around, you know, in their mouth, and then they spit it out. What are they looking for? At Bristol Farms and Lazy Acres, we offer demos, free demos. Really? Really? So people can go in there? They can go in. They're allowed by law on our license to taste one ounce of wine. Three different types of wine can be offered on that same day. It's become such a huge part of our business because it not only entertains people, it educates them, and they can actually taste it. We even do spirit items, and that's a half ounce. So, yes, you can have your cake and eat it, too, and enjoy a good bottle of red or white. And your, the, uh, I love that. I love that. But now, Bristol Farms, is it just in California? Yes. Okay, which means anybody listening that wants to take advantage of this, the next time you come to California, you got to hit Bristol Farms and ask for Michael Cristillo. Yeah, just ask what demos are coming up, and they will definitely Beautiful. help you out. You admitted one very important part of that process of swirling. Hmm. There used to be a time you'd swirl a glass, and you want to look at those, what they call the legs. Okay. Which, if you can see the legs, it's a great wine. If you can't, you can't. Wine has legs? Yes. <laughs> You know, not like Betty Grable legs, but they, yeah, they have my Um No, it's just, if you look, let's say, on a white wine or even a, a, certainly a red wine, if you swirl the glass and you're going to see those little rivers, it basically it's glycerin that's pouring down on the sides, and we call them legs. That's just simply, it really comes down to the content of the alcohol. So it really doesn't have anything to do with how good or bad a wine is. The first thing you want to get out of a swirl of a wine glass is the nose, the bouquet. That's almost the most important thing for a winemaker. Most of them have told me this. It's not the taste. It's what you get off the nose. And you can tell a lot of things off that because, you know, if a wine is bad, if it smells of like wet cardboard, 
we have a corked wine. You don't even have to taste it. So swirling is sort of a multi-process equation here. And so Mm -hmm. smell it first and then sip. And you want to bring in a little air when you do that sip because that kind of opens up the wine in your mouth more for reds than whites. And then enjoy it after that. And it really depends on where that wine hits your tongue because we've got those five senses going on. And some will react better than others simply depending on what it is and where it's made. Okay. Now, this has been kind of like a little bit of a joke with you and I. You know I like a particular type of wine. We're not going to give the name of the wine, okay? Mm -hmm. And you've always said, oh, that's a dirty wine. I've always wanted to ask you, Michael, dirty wine. Does that mean they told a dirty joke when they made it? Were their feet dirty when they were stomping on it? Hands dirty handling it? Or menage a trois? (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, you have no idea how badly I wanted to say that. And I thought, well, you know what? I would have been speaking French. <laughs> when I drink that wine, I feel dirty. Let me put it that way. Um, it's just what happens, and it's a term I probably picked up from the grocery side. We have a store called Lazy Acres, and it's, it's our organic, sustainable, non-GMO company. And anything that's dirty, meaning coloring, preservatives, uh, that are not natural, they don't accept those. We know of a wine like the one you've just mentioned. It's a large, large company. They produce millions and millions of cases, and you want it to taste exactly the same way vintage after vintage, and I get that. But sometimes they will do things like add wood chips, oak chips. They will add concentrated grape juice. Um, really? Concentrated add- grape juice? Yeah, and that actually is legal in the state of California. I'm not sure about the other states. Yeah, if you want to kind of perk it up with some color and density, they add grape juice to it, concentrated. But it's the preservatives. They'll do reverse osmosis to heighten the the, uh, alcohol level. There's a lot of tricks of the trade. And it's just that when they're putting stuff into it that's not really coming from Mother Nature, that's when I call it dirty. doesn't mean it doesn't necessarily taste bad, but I'd rather have something that's a bit more natural than that. Well, so if you're traveling, let's say, over to France... Spain, Italy, wherever, uh, Argentina. Uh, some have come back saying that the wine tastes a lot better over there. Is that because that there are preservatives put into wine before it comes into the U.S. market? Uh, I've fallen into the trap a few times. I remember doing a trip to South Africa, and, I mean, the wines are phenomenal. And I remember just that they were so great, but then I remember the scenery was fabulous. The food was great. The people were so sweet. And I think something that simply elevates what you think of a product, in this case, wine. It could be the same thing for the food. And so I come back to America and I try the wines again. I'm thinking, God, they just didn't taste quite as good as I thought they did when I was over there. And part of that could be the transportation. The the reason why countries add sulfites, it's a preservative. And because of the transport issues, the bumping, the agitation, the temperature changes, that can damage wine. So it's entirely possible that by the time it gets to our shores, it's been beat up a little bit. And that's why often people will say, can you just let this rest for two or three weeks before you actually taste it? Because it's going to be a little unbalanced. And in those cases, that's absolutely true. So, but they do add preservatives, but most likely in their own country of origin, but I'm sure it gets an extra shot if it's going to be coming to our shores, just to make sure that it's not quite so unbalanced by the time you pop that cork. Is there anything that is coming out for the holidays that is going to take the U.S. by storm? You know, a wine that people are going to be rushing to get? 
I, I would say the one thing people do look forward to is that Nouveau Beaujolais. It comes out once a year. It's a wine you consume within several days. And literally, we are asked not to put it out before that third Thursday in November. And this was a wine that was made originally for the workers. It was quickly pressed, consumed that day, and that was it. It's not a vintage. It is vintage dated, but you don't hold on to it. You want to drink it as quickly as you can. And there's been a real kind of following and sort of a method to this Nouveau Beaujolais that really attracts a lot of people. And they know that it goes well with the turkey dinner. And lately, that what's really taken everyone by storm are these hard seltzers. We call these alternative cocktails or ready-made cocktails or hard seltzers. And you've seen them all over the social media, which has really altered the terrain of wine and spirits. So in a way, people are looking for these other things, not just wine anymore. I may want to turn somebody on to, like I said, a really good Gerberts demeanor or a Riesling. They're going to say, oh, that sounds really good, but do you have any of that hard seltzer? What can I have as a cocktail just to enjoy right now? And I'll think about the aspect of the wine and food pairing later on. We have to have really good people on the floor to kind of educate people and get them excited about wine in itself. Well, you know, education is important. And Michael, I, you're just a, a wealth of knowledge. And I want to have you back on On Cue to talk a little bit more, uh, especially some of the trips that you've taken to the wineries. But I'm going to put you on the spot because you lived in France for four years. And I just absolutely love it when you speak French. Can you just say something in French? La prochaine fois qu'on va faire ça, je vais demander beaucoup plus d'argent. Oh, I love it. What did you just say? I said, the next time we do this questionnaire, I'm going to ask for more money. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I love it, Michael. Michael, you're wonderful. Mm -hmm. Let's do it again. If there's any questions that are going to come in from this segment, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot, I'm going to email them over to you, okay, so you can answer. Okay, thank you, Michael. I really appreciate your taking the time. It was fun, and we're going to do it again. Oh, I, I would love that. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I learned something, but I still love my dirty wine. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to On Cue. I invite you to visit our Facebook page, On Cue Chris Costello, for more information and for upcoming guests. Remember, Each of us has a voice and a story. So until next time, share a smile, laugh often, be kind to each other, and let's help make this an even better world.